welcome to Ask the Horse Live. I'm your host, Michelle Anderson, Digital Managing Editor of TheHorse.com. Tonight, our topic is designing the, and perfecting your perfect horse property, uh, brought to you by the Horses Farm and Barn newsletter. Eight years ago, I wanted nothing more than to move out of town to a small property where I could keep my horses at home rather than board them. I convinced my husband it was a good idea, and he's a good sport, and so we purchased a small fixer-upper on two and a quarter acres. Uh, it had a fixer-upper house. Uh, it had no arena, no barn, no fences, so we were starting from scratch. Fortunately for me, my husband's an architect, and an optimist so he could see the potential in our property and has the professional skill set to help us make uh, my dreams a reality and bring the horses home. I wrote about our experiences in a recent article called Building a Horse Property from the Ground Up which you can read online at thehorse.com at thehorse.com slash 36072. Our place is still a work in progress. I actually just got my arena footing installed two weeks ago, which I have to say has pretty much changed my life. I can ride my horses uh, anytime I have a break, which is great. Um, but we still have a long, long way to go, and I'm always looking for good ideas to help improve our place. Uh, tonight, I have invited Carolyn Adams, AIA, who is a horse owner and a licensed architect that lives near Seattle, Washington. You can see the photos of her personal horse property at thehorse.com slash 34406. I'll repeat that, 34406. Go take a look. The place is absolutely adorable. Um, we're also joined tonight by Elaine Blickley, a regular farm and barn contributor to the horse and director of Horses for Clean Water in Nampa, Idaho. I want to welcome both of you ladies. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Yeah, thanks, Michelle. So we're gonna, yeah, we're gonna start uh, with Carolyn. Being married to an architect, I know that people in your profession are very passionate about your work. Can you tell us a little bit about how you've combined your two passions, architecture and horses, into your career? Yes, yeah, sure. Um, I was an architect actually before I started riding, which is now nearly about 20 years ago. Hard to believe. Um, and over the years, I boarded my horse at a number of different facilities. And um, each one had pluses and minuses, some really great features, some, some not so great features in my estimation. Um, so over the years, I really had an opportunity to discover what works and what doesn't in different um, horse facilities. And um, combining the two, the passion of the two just really evolved naturally over time. And it culminated in me having the wonderful opportunity to build my own um, little micro farm outside of Seattle, my own dream horse property. And um, I was able to take all the ideas that I thought worked really, really well and create something that was really uniquely suited to my own site and my own circumstances. And Elaine, you've spent a lot of your time educating horse owners about improving their properties uh, with a focus on environmentally sustainable practices. Where does your interest in creating functional and environmentally friendly horse properties come from? Well, basically I'm teaching about things, about practices like mud management and manure management, pasture management. And people are not going to be able to... Um, 
implement these practices or do these things unless their properties are chore efficient and laid out and designed well. So I'm all about chore efficiency and about functional horse designs for properties. And what I learned from uh, one of my um, people that I, one of my friends and people that I work with, she always says, if it's too much like work, it's just not going to get done. So you've got to set up your place to be functional and chore efficient so that you can enjoy it and get your mud and manure management done and your other chores. So our event tonight is an hour long, and we're going to stay, uh, do our best to stay within that time frame. If you're listening live, you can go ahead and submit your questions via your browser window. Uh, we're also going to be answering questions that were submitted ahead of time. Let's go ahead because we have a lot of great topics to get to tonight. Um, Carolyn, I want to start with you. In my article, I talked about how I would try to design how I wanted my horse property to function as a horse owner. Um, I've been to a lot of horse properties. I thought I knew how they should work. It would take me hours, if not days. Like I would sit there and I would draw and draw and draw, and then uh, and so then my husband would come and he'd look over my shoulder and he would fix it and come up with a solution really quickly. Um, that's one example I have of how having a professional involved in designing a property can save time. Can you share with us the, some of the other benefits of having a licensed architect involved from the beginning of designing a horse property? Sure. Um, architects are trained to look at the big picture as well as the details. Um, and we can help horse owners select um, an appropriate property um, we can help them interpret all the zoning and building codes that can be quite overwhelming and um, off-putting because they're, they can be really um, not very um, accessible to even to architects sometimes, but to, to homeowners. Um, we can help organize and plan the site, both functionally and aesthetically. And then finally, we get down to designing the building. So basically, um, we we do we have a lot of services that we provide. Not just okay, let's plop a barn on the property. We help um, look at the property holistically and what what the owners' needs are, and and really help them figure out the best solution for them, con considering all the things I just mentioned. Um, after we do that, we will provide um, the building. Um, drawings sort of like I like to liken it to a recipe um, if you're making a casserole you'd use a recipe if you're designing a building the architect creates the recipe that the contractor will then build from so um, so that is a big piece of what we do but it isn't the only thing by any means at all um, and then architects can help to select a, a good contractor for the project and um, very often after that, we'll represent the owner negotiating with the contractor because sometimes contractors might be looking, not all the time, but very, but frequently the contractor will be looking to keep his costs as low as possible so that he can keep the project price as low as possible. Well, there may be other solutions he hasn't considered and an architect can help really weed out um, the best um, of all of that. Um, and then finally, we can help owners make 
some of those really difficult decisions about materials and hardware and there are just a myriad of different considerations that most people don't realize until they get into it and it can be really overwhelming. Um, our next question is, I think, for both of you, and it's starting from the beginning. And we'll start with Elaine, and then, uh, Carolyn, you can jump in. Natalie in Ohio wants to know, what are some key things to look for when you're searching for the right piece of land for your horse property? I love it when people ask me that question because the answer is a little different than what us horse people usually think of. Usually we're thinking of is it can we ride? Does it have an arena? When, well, how big is the barn? But what I'd like people to think about is looking at the soil first and starting there and then going up because most of the time when we're buying horse property, um, you know, we're, we're really raising grass and that's kind of one of the most important things to be thinking about is looking at it as a, being a grass farmer. Um, but even if you're not going to have pasture, you want to make sure that the soils are right for the type of use that you have. For example, if you want to have um, mud-free paddocks and uh, areas around your barn, you want to have a well-drained piece of land. You don't want to get soils that are very organic because you're always going to be fighting that organic issue and always going to be fighting mud. And in some cases, you can't even rectify it and, and make it um, horse worthy. If you want to have pasture, you don't want to have droughty soils uh, with lots of rocks and that's you know really well drained. You want to have soil that's going to have a lot of organics in it and be good for growing grass. So my best piece of advice for people is to start from the ground up and you can get information on the soil by um, talking to your conservation district or talking to Extension, or you can go online and go to the Web Soil Survey, and that actually is um, the USDA. It's a government um, website that has information on all the soil types for the entire United States. So you just have to have your address for your property. Okay. And Carolyn, what are some of your thoughts? Well, um, after that, that is, is really important what Elaine said. But then I would say um, next step is to consider, um, you have to do quite a bit of research into the, what I mentioned earlier, the zoning and building codes and restrictions, um, whether there's natural habitat on the property. Um, in short, you have to make sure that you can actually build on the site and sometimes there'll be a property that looks great and it may be even a wonderful price. It's been on the market for a while and there may be a reason for that. Very likely there are some limitations. So, so you really have to um, research thoroughly with the county that you're in or um, whatever the governing body is. Sometimes it's a city, sometimes it's county. Um, you can do a lot of um, discovery on a um, on a property just to see what what is actually buildable. There are setbacks. If it's a smaller type of a property, there may be building setbacks that would limit um, how much area you can build on and where, and that might create problems for whatever uh, you might be trying to design. Um, 
there are, in my area, for example, um, only a certain amount of square footage of the whole site that you can cover, that would probably be less of an issue on large properties. So, um, for example, where I live, it's very, very difficult to build a covered arena because um, it's uh, too much of what they call impervious surface or um, surface that doesn't drain when the rain falls on it. And so, so that's, I would say, a really important consideration. The other uh, extremely important consideration is things like climate, topography, um, do you have a good water source? Is there a well on the property? Is it utility? Is there a septic system? Um, is it a sloped site? Is there a lot of vegetation on the site? Um, I happen to know some places where um, places that have been built on a floodplain and they've made that work. They got a good price for their uh, property that they bought. But on the other hand, on the rare occasion it floods, they need to use a boat to get in and out of their facility, and they need to place the. Uh, they have a, an accessory barn to put the horses um, on high land in the case of a situation like that. So, lots of hidden considerations that um, nobody thinks about until they've actually had to address them. And sometimes that's not the best time. Um, there may be some hazardous waste materials on the site. I think a couple other things I wanted to add are. Um, is there a good um, way to manage the manure in smaller, more um, t denser populated areas? Example is where I live. I need to haul my manure off the site. And uh, there are fewer and fewer places who take it now. So things like that need to be researched. So, oh, I'm sorry. Did you have more to add? No, I think uh, that's good I'm for now. Oh, sorry, Carolyn. I was just going to uh, reiterate one thing that Carolyn said that I thought was a, would be an important point to emphasize, and that's the well and septic, because most rural land is going to have one or both of those things, a, a septic field and a well. And it's really important that you identify where those are and that you work with somebody that can help you establish the buffer for those, like it's usually 100 feet for the, from the wellhead for placement of your confinement areas or your compost bins. Um, and your septic field should not have anything, any heavy use over it, like a driveway or a confinement area um, or any kind of a structure over it. So those two things could really limit your use of your property or make it quite a puzzle. So, but they're also very important um, for environmental health as well as human health that you manage them carefully. Yeah. So one of my personal experiences with our property is that we live in a, a area with a lot of um, lava flows. And so we didn't do a feasibility study, a soil study on our property before we bought it. Um, and then we found that it was very difficult to dig fence post holes in some places, um, or even to drive T-posts. So that's just something to keep in mind. One of those things that you mentioned, Carolyn, that can pop up that you may not completely expect. <laughs> so um, we have, uh, our next question is for you, Carolyn, and it's from Krista in Memphis. Um, and she wants to know if you have any advice on collecting rainwater or gray water for use on a property. Any ideas for budget would be helpful. So what are some considerations when we're collecting gray water, and is that something we can always do? 
Um, you know, I, I'm going to actually turf part of this to Elaine because this is really um, under her, her um, area of expertise too. But there, there are really cost-effective ways of doing this. Um, you can collect it. Um, one thing that I recommend is to use uh, to put gutters and downspouts on your roof so that you can drain down to either a rain barrel or a cistern to store the water and then reuse it. Um, another another uh, very attractive and beneficial way of storing water is in a rain garden um, so that you would drain off the gray water and it would be held in kind of a holding pond that's surrounded by vegetation and um, you can use that use that later on um, and I think uh, these are not expensive solutions. They're they're pretty low tech, and and you can save a lot of water that way. But I'm sure Elaine can add add to that. Well, I would just say um, for the roof runoff, if you want to collect that, I think that's a great idea. Particularly if you have a metal roof, uh, we, it's not recommended if you've got like a cedar shake or a composite roof. But for a metal roof, if you have gutters and downspouts and you want to collect it for stock watering tanks, that's a great idea. You just want to make sure then that your horse watering trough has an overflow valve so that it redirects the water away if you have, you know, so if your stock watering tank fills up, you don't want it to overflow, fill up and overflow right where your horses are, you'll create a lot of mud. But if you have an uh, overflow, uh, hose that you can redirect that water when it, the tank is filled up. Um, that's a, a good use. Also, cisterns if you want to collect the roof runoff in a cistern and use it like a, a cistern is basically like a giant rain barrel. And there's many parts of the country where people depend on their roof runoff for uh, watering their accessory uses like gardens and um, watering their animals or anything like that. So you can use a cistern to collect your roof runoff. Of course, that's only going to accumulate during the rainy season, so it's not going to be as helpful for you doing during the summer months, but it's still a good idea. I've seen places that use that as their uh, backup supply for in case there was a fire as well, which I thought was a really good use of it. Um, Elaine, our next question is for you, and it's from Peter in Washington. And he has a question that actually we got a lot of questions about this, uh, the paddock paradise or track paddocks. He wants to know what your right. thoughts are on on those systems, and then can you explain a little bit what that is and how someone might go about designing that for their property? Sure. Track paddocks are pretty cool. They are um, an idea that... Uh, Jamie Jackson made famous. He's a farrier who studied and watched wild horses and how they moved in the in the wild. And he came up with a design for paddocks based on his observations. And he calls it a paddock paradise, or I think um, other, you know, kind of a common name for it too is a track paddock. And Basically, a track paddock can be any shape, or, or maybe I should back up a little bit. Why use a track paddock? Jamie Jackson's idea was that um, 
it's more natural for a horse to be able to move around and they're going to have uh, fewer vices, healthier hooves, um, overall improved health, you know, like less ulcers, and, um, not going to be cribbing and, and things like that. So the track paddock is uh, designed for a confinement area where the horses can move around and wander around on your property. And really it's kind of the sky is the limit as far as the size and shape uh, and how big they are. I've seen some really small track paddocks that still work as uh, an area that a horse moves around in. And I've seen huge ones. Um, the ones that Jamie Jackson, uh, his design for his place, they're quite large. I would say several acres probably as track goes over. But I just had a farm tour in the Seattle area at a place that had, she has less than two acres. And her track goes around the outside of her arena and the outside of her, um, she has a little trail course and then a like a, a barn. So it's the outside of all of that. And it's, it's basically just square. And it works quite well. So the things to consider when designing a track paddock, it goes back to soil type. Um, there, a track paddock's only going to work if you've got really well-drained soils. If you've got really wet or organic soils, it's just going to turn to mud right away with the continued heavy use. But <clears throat> if you've got an, enough land or the right shape to your land, you can kind of creatively design a track. You want to think about how big you make it, um, because the bigger you make it, that means more maintenance. You're still going to have to pick up manure in this area. You're going to have to perhaps put down mud in the or dirt or footing in the muddy spot so that it doesn't turn, you know, worse. Um, and then you're going to have to have fencing for the for the entire thing. So it could be pretty expensive if you're putting in a big track paddock. So those are just kind of the basic things. Any other questions that you can think about that as a follow-up, Michelle, that I didn't cover? No, I think I think you um, you covered it pretty well. Uh, they're okay. really interesting with um, kind of the activities that, that well, they they seem to me like activity stations that people place and then poles to step over, places to get feed, places to to drink water. Um, really interesting concept that I wish I would have known more about before we put up all of our our fences. I don't know that I want to redo fences. <laughs> But, right, uh, right. You can do a lot with temporary fencing um, to set up a track paddock. And yes, you're right. Like Jamie Jackson's big thing was to put feeding stations in different areas to encourage them to move around and 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 water and poles to step over, like you were saying. So our next question is for Carolyn, and it came in from Ellen in New Jersey, and she says that she is building her first barn. She needs uh, 12 roomy stalls, um, and she wants to know if she should hire a contractor or buy a prefab barn. So can you explain a little bit the process of what would go into um, starting the planning for a barn this large? Yeah, first of all, I would encourage um, Ellen to um, start with by hiring an architect who could help her um, with what I described earlier, the, the big picture planning. And by doing the big picture planning, 
um, that might help her to make a determination as to whether she should hire a contractor um, to design it or to buy a prefab or allow the architect to design it and um, have the contractor build it. So that would be my first comment. Um, contractors are really building specialists who aren't trained to be designers per se. They are uh, they're trained to, to construct, to build things. And it seems to be a, a little bit of a common misconception that um, sometimes that I've run across that, that people think that, um, you know, the contractor will design the barn. Well, many do that. But that doesn't mean that they have the expertise to consider all the potential solutions to the, to, to the specific site and, and to the um, owner's needs and, and wants. So um, what I would say is that good design is a, is a precursor to a good building. And, um, you know, so as, as I mentioned before, a lot of the decisions would be influenced by the location of the buildings. Um, all the, the specific wants and needs that the owner would want, um, any horse eccentricities or you know, all those kind of things. So a contractor might nece not necessarily take all that into consideration. But um, if she did choose to go with one or the other, um, I would be very careful to make sure, I think the most important thing is to ask for references. Um, for either the contractor or the barn builders and make sure that you talk to at least three or four people who have used that person and um, ask them questions about um, did they complete the project on time, did they respect the budget that they were given, um, were the materials that they used quality building materials, um, did you enjoy working with them and their team. So um, if you use an architect you have somebody to volley with with that contractor to make sure that really a little bit of quality control to ensure that um, you know he 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 or she does do all those things. Um, but to answer the question directly, uh, I would research both options um, and ask those questions and and really get a sense of who they were before you hired them. And Carolyn, do you think it's a, a misconception that people have that if they hire an architect, the architect is going to want to design the building and wouldn't refer them to, well, let's go ahead and do a prefab building? Would that maybe suit some people's needs and an architect would recommend that? Um, I just, I actually went through that with a, a client that I have right now and I suggested to her that we might want to research that option because um, it turned out in her case that she had a lot of custom needs, so we didn't go down that road. But I don't, I don't, I think that um, many architects would would be happy to to work with a, a that a barn professional a prefab builder. We do prefab buildings sometimes as architects uh, with our clients, and um, if that's the right solution for the owner, there are plenty of people who would would support that. Plenty of architects. Elaine, our next question is for you, and it's from Judy in Florida, and she says she just built a new barn, and then she has four 12 by 12 stalls, and she would like to know how to set up dirt floors in her stalls. What materials should she use? Elaine, what kind of advice do you have for Judy? Um, I really like rubber stall mats because 
they are uh, great for the horse to stand on. They have, you know, cushioning, a certain amount of cushioning foam. And they are super easy to clean as, um, as a, for chore efficiency. When you have a level surface, it just makes cleaning stalls so much easier. So the way you want to install a stall mat is that you want to put down crushed rock a couple of inches thick, and you want to make sure it's level and compacted. And then you put your stall mats over the top of that. You can use a couple of vice grips that you can attach to them, and you can use those kind of like as handles to maneuver the stall mats into place. And uh, and and then just set it into place like pieces of a puzzle. Um, and you want it so you want it even, and you want the stall mats to butt up against each other and the wall as close as possible. So. Stall mats with crushed rock underneath. Maybe Carolyn might have something to add to that. No, I, I mean that's that's what I would suggest as well. Uh, there okay. are other alternatives, um, more uh, cushiony materials and things, but I think that that works really really well in those situations. And so, we do have we have a follow up. Question from our live audience. Uh, Alexis wants to know what kind of stall. Um, flooring would be appropriate for the geriatric horse that maybe needs a little bit more cushion. Uh, Carolyn, do you have some thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I do. There are um, different surfaces. One that I've just been researching for uh, my work is, I, I believe it's called Stable Comfort, and it is online. And it's, I believe, it's about a two to two and a half inch cushion, and um, it's it's installed over. Um, I can be, I believe, installed over um, compacted earth or on concrete, and um, I think that that would be a really nice surface to explore. Okay. Or another alternative would be to do a double layer of stall mats. Okay. Mm -hmm. okay. Carolyn, we have another question for you. This is from Barbara in Florida. She said, or she wants to know, when designing a barn, how do you decide which way to orient the barn for the best airflow and natural sunlight. She said, living in Florida, airflow is really important. So what are you looking at as a barn designer? Um, well, I'm guessing that in her climate, obviously shade is much more of a concern than um, some in some climates we would want to maximize the sun access, but in hers we would want to minimize that. So I'm, I'm thinking we would probably orient that building if it's long and narrow um, on a north-south axis so that uh, the southern exposure is um, minimized because that's where you get the direct sunlight. And um, you have to discover where the um, prevailing winds are coming from. And then that will help you to orient the building to maximize those breezes. And she's absolutely right. You want to capture the breezes and um, have as much shade as you can. There are other ways of, uh, besides the, the siting, that you can um, you can um, plant trees for for the shading and so on and so forth. But but that's that's the first step is is to look exactly on the site. Where would where would the winds come through the site? If it were a flat site, it probably wouldn't matter so much. But they typically are directional. Um, certain times of year, 
So that would be available probably online through some of the climate data. Uh, our next question is for you, Elaine. Michaela, who's also in Florida, would like to know what you would recommend for the size of a hunter-jumper arena, and how would you go about having that arena built? So I don't know the specific recommendations since I don't ride hunters and jumpers. So I would say for the size that maybe she uh, – I always recommend to people to go and do field trips and, and talk to other people who have arenas that you like and also hunter-jumper trainers and ask them the size. And maybe the organization might have specifics as far as what size recommendations. If there's a, I'm sure there's a – specific organization for hunters and jumpers, but and, and Elaine, I always, oh, yeah. since, since I just went through this process of building an, an arena, yeah. um, I, I'm a dressage rider, so I didn't need an arena big enough to jump in, but the numbers that I looked at was a minimum of 100 by 200 to be able to do some jumps, um, and then 200 to 300 to have an actual like big jump arena or jump field. Um, but I found, because I wanted to go to that 100 by 200, uh, but my budget ran out, and then because of the size of my property, only having two and a quarter acres, I ran out of space because of my septic drain field and having to have a reserve for a backup septic drain field. Um, so that's that's what I ran into. But I think 100 by 200 is, is a pretty generous arena for someone like myself who's a single person person riding out in, in their arena who might want to pop over some jumps. So anyway, sorry to interrupt you. Go yeah. on, Elaine. No, no, I appreciate appreciate that. But what, And what I was going to say, um, you being a dressage rider would know this, really the United States Dressage uh, Federation or Foundation is the, is the basic that it's the go-to standard for all arenas. It doesn't even matter if it's raining we all go to USDF and look at their recommendations for how to build an arena, and they have a really nice little booklet that costs, um, it used to just cost like 10 bucks um, as far as how to build an arena, and I, I always refer people to that. Um, then as far as you want the slope and the pitch, you want to be thinking about that so your arena drains. Um, you know, it depends on how, about your soil, once again, as far as how well drained it is, as, as far as what kind of substructure you have to put in to make sure that it's going to drain and that your larger rocks are not going to work up to the top. And then the type of footing for hunters and jumpers, I would imagine that you'd want something a little more cushy, so probably some type of of chipped wood, but again, when it gets to the footing part, I would I would go on some field trips and go and visit a lot of barns in your area and see what arenas are working for them, um, which ones you like, and look at the type of footing that they have and ride in them. And if you can, do a haul in and, and ride them and see if you like that footing. Whatever footing you use, it's going to end up in your compost pile, so what, you want to make sure it's something that's organic that you can live with. So a lot of times the shredded tires or shredded Nikes, you know, they're going to end up in your compost pile and then back out in your pasture. So it's just something to think about and keep in mind. Yeah. And what I found doing my arena is there's the ideal, because that USDF booklet is great with showing um, the, the drainage systems for the arenas and, and 
the perfect arena, but then I had limitations on the materials that were specifically available in my area. Um, so that's something to keep in mind that those of us here in Central Oregon will, will have different footing options than maybe Carolyn would up in, in the Seattle area, uh, unless you want to spend more money. Because I can get Carolyn's footing, which is better than mine in my area, but I have to pay to get a truck to you. <laughs> so um, budget right. is, was yeah, a, that's a good point. So um, we have a follow-up um, question. Oh, Carolyn. Oh, I was just going to add, um, Elaine mentioned to doing field trips to see these facilities, try them out. And I would also add, talk to the trainers that are residents there. Talk to the boarders who have been there for a long time and ask them what they think works well and doesn't. Because they've, they've been the users and they will have a lot of good information as well. Yeah, that's, and, that's and also the clubs, I'm sure that there's uh, hunter-jumper clubs or um, some kind of English uh, riding organization of, of horse owners in the area and go talk to them and a lot of times they have local speakers and things that come to their meetings that will talk about these kinds of things. And we have a follow-up question, Elaine, about arenas. Nikki is in our live audience and she wants to know what size arena would you recommend for ranch, house, ranch horse riding? So for, for ranch horses and also you know, you're a rainer, how, how big do you want your arena for your work? Well, if it's an outdoor arena and an indoor arena are two different things, but um, probably the minimum you want is like 70 by 80, some like 70 feet or 80 feet wide is the minimum width, and then at least 120, I think, is what what I have found over the years. And we do rain and we do cow horse, and um, to just to try to get lead changes and things, and you've got to at least have that 80. 70 or 80 feet wide and 120 feet long, and then bigger is better when it comes to arenas. But if we were building an indoor arena, we would um, we would be thrilled just to have a 70 by 120 indoor arena. Yeah, I think the answer to how big should your arena be is um, the biggest that your budget can afford you. <laughs> so that's... Yes, that's a good way to that's a good way to put it, Michelle. Um, we have a question for Carolyn, and it's Linda in Ohio wants to know what constitutes good ventilation in a horse barn, and how do you accomplish good ventilation? Her barn will be in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, well, I would say that good ventilation means lots of ventilation, and ventilation is extremely important as far as um, the health of the horse and, and keeping the air clean. Because it, collect so much dust and everything. And I think the way to accomplish good ventilation is to have um, a lot of different options um, on your barn building. There can be roof vents, um, which would run along the whole ridline of the roof. So that would be a long vent that provided um, ventilation to the very top of the building. You can have eave vents, which would be where the roof meets the walls. Uh, you can have quite a few of those. You can have uh, pro projecting vents like cupolas um, and that penetrate that come up uh, above the top of the roof. And you can have end wall vents, um, such as you, you see a lot of different shapes in those. They can be circular or uh, rectangular or triangular. And they would be uh, typically 
where um, on the end walls of the barn where the gable uh, comes up like a triangle. Um, and then um, you can always use fans to increase ventilation in certain climates. Um, also, I think a way of achieving um, ventilation is to use some, some climates use a lot of the mesh stall fronts because those don't really trap air inside the stalls. That's an option. And then finally, uh, probably one of the biggest design elements is, is your, your doors. And to get across ventilation, you need to have um, doors on opposite ends of the building. And then that breeze will, will run through the building. Um, so, and then, then you would still want to be orienting that toward, um, along with the prevailing breezes probably in the climate like North Carolina. That might be different in a cold climate. You might be wanting to protect against harsh winter winds. So um, definitely important to consider where your facility is. But in her case, I think we would want to maximize all opportunities for, for um, ventilation that we could. I would say, um, if I can jump in and add, that I think that good ventilation is probably the most important thing in a barn. Uh, I see so many, I'm sure many of the um, people in the audience see this too. You go into so many barns and you smell ammonia and it's damp in there and all that moisture and the mold from hay and dust and things. Is, uh, the horse's respiratory system is their Achilles heel. and Ventilation is probably the most important thing in, in any facility. Yeah, and I have a horse that um, has a tendency to get heaves when he's in a barn. It was one of the things I didn't like about boarding is he'd be in a stall and then he the dust from the the foot or from the the bedding would get him coughing and the ammonia and uh, having him at home where he's out with loafing sheds he hasn't I he never has breathing problems ever. He hasn't for seven years. And then, you know, it's something we fought for the first seven years of his life until I had him at home. Um, and we haven't built our barn yet. We have a plan to build build a barn. But um, I hate, I'm kind of teeter and go, maybe we don't need this barn. Maybe he's happier out in his loafing shed. I don't know. But um, we have, our next question is for uh, Elaine. And it's from Kathy in Colorado. And Kathy's question is really popular. We got a lot of questions along these lines, and that is how do you control mud around your facility? She said that um, she would like to know what she could mix in her soil and her paddocks to help avoid them from becoming sloppy and muddy messes when it rains and, and snows. So Elaine, we'll start with you, and then Carolyn, if you have some, uh, some information to add, that would be great. Okay, yay. One of my favorite questions is mud management. And it actually uh, is related to one of my other favorite um, topics, and that's manure management. <clears throat> so the first most important thing is to avoid mud is to pick up manure, because a horse produces about 50 pounds of manure a day, and if you don't pick it up, it's, it's going to um, become 50 pounds of mud a day, particularly during the rainy or winter season. So manure management is important, so you want to have a good manure management plan where you're going to manage the manure, like composting is, is one of my favorites. <clears throat> then you want to have gutters and downspouts, like we uh, kind of alluded to earlier, Carolyn mentioned it. You want to capture that clean rainwater that's hitting the roof 
and divert it away and keep it clean environmentally. You want to do that. And then as a horse owner, you want to do it because you don't want it to go into your paddocks and create more mud in your confinement areas. So divert that clean rainwater away to someplace where it can stay clean and soak into the footprint of your property. And then the next thing is to use some kind of footing in your confinement areas and your high traffic areas. <clears throat> and so a footing would be something that's going to get the horse up off of the soil and help allow for drainage through the footing and help prevent erosion. So it's usually going to, the best kind of footing is going to be something that's inorganic, probably some kind of crushed rock product that's available in your area. And this I find across the United States is very diverse. Um, again, do that shopping thing that we were talking about before where you go around and you tour other facilities, look at what they're using in their confinement areas and their high traffic areas, see if it's easy to pick up manure from that kind of footing, see if horses are standing on it okay. Usually you don't want anything bigger than about five-eighths of an inch because then it's going to be uncomfortable for most horses to stand on. But you could go all the way down to sand, to a uh, washed sand that's not going to be as dusty. And as long as you're not feeding on sand, uh, horses love sand footing. Yeah. Anything, and, uh, any other follow-ups that you can think of, Michelle? Well, I was going to say I've visited your farm there in Idaho, Elaine, and I, your footing in your paddocks off your barn is some of the best that I've seen. I recently had a friend who was who we were having a conversation about her footing getting muddy and then frozen here in the winter, and I suggested that she do exactly what you have and have that sand. Because yeah. I, I went out and picked your paddocks one morning, and they, they were so easy, really easy. It reminded me of um, cleaning a litter box with a scoopable litter. Um, yeah, right. So easy to pick and to well, get them meticulously clean. Why, um, Carolyn has great footing in her paddocks too. I think Carolyn, yours is a half inch, is it, or half inch crushed rock? Yeah, and underneath is a, a product called Hoof Grid. Um, it's kind of like an egg carton. It's rubber, and so if your budget allows that, that allows the gravel to stay in place for a really long time. There are a number of products on the market, and they can be used uh, sparingly. So in really just the high traffic areas, they don't have to be used throughout and that's very helpful so I have a, a, a very small property so um, everything is kind of a high traffic area <laughs> but light hoof, hoof grid or a couple of the ones on the market that would be worth researching yeah really good products our next question is for Carolyn it came in from Susan in New York and Carolyn wants to know what design elements you would recommend that would help provide security from for your barn and prevent horse theft. Okay, I think that there are a lot of things you can do in the planning stages to uh, minimize that the problem of theft. And number one is place your barn and your horses in a high visibility area so that one, um, who's ever on, on the property, the owner, or if it's a larger property, a, a manager would be able to see people coming and going. I mean, I think that that would be the easiest 
the, the most basic fundamental uh, way of um, of um, providing that security from theft. Also limit the access to the site to people who really belong there, be they uh, owners, boarders, farriers, veterinarians, something like that, so that um, not everybody can come and go um, unseen. That would be really important. Um, then you can get into locking gates and more, a little bit more high tech using um, cameras and alarm systems. Um, but I think a lot of that problem can be solved by um, by making sure that the, the horses can be seen. Um, and then I would say when we're talking about security, don't forget to consider fire safety in your security plan. That's really, really important too. Mm -hmm. And so mentioning that, what are some considerations you make when you're designing barns to help prevent fires or help so that the horses could be evacuated in the case of a fire? Uh, once again, um, to make sure that there's easy access out of that barn and, and that there are two ways out instead of just one. Um, hay can catch fire and burn a barn down really, really quickly. So um, there's it's controversial as to whether one should store hay in um, in the barn that the horses are living in. Um, you know, I um, if you, uh, I might add to that. I had a friend of mine who was um, the assistant chief of police for the city of Seattle who was a horse person, and I asked her those questions, and she said one of the best things that you can do is really easy for most of us horse people, and she said is to have dogs. And she said that they um, find that there's, you know, a lot less theft in houses with dogs. So, and she also mentioned a motion uh, detector light too would be is good for preventing theft. And also, one one thing I wanted to add to the fire safety is a, a really easy fix is also to make sure you have lots of up to date fire extinguishers and um, smoke detectors and smoke alarms. Mm -hmm. Um, our next question is for Elaine, and it came in from Fiona in North Carolina. And Fiona wants to know what recommendations you would have for a manure storage and or composting uh, setup for a single horse owner on their property when they have no tractor. I'm going to raise my hand here. I don't have my tractor yet, and I really want one. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you yeah. live without a tractor, Elaine? Oh, we lived without a tractor for a long time, and then, of course, now we wonder how we did it. But um, I have on my – I do the Smart Horse Keeping blog, and I have a blog about how to design and build um, a compost bin. I, You can easily get um, equipment to pick up your the manure in your horse's paddocks and get it into a compost bin. I'm a big – fan of composting and reusing it then either on your property or um, in your pastures or lawns or gardens. Um, if like at Carolyn's place, Carolyn doesn't have enough room or she doesn't have enough use for compost so she has to haul her manure off. So she has a, a really cool manure cart that she takes her manure off of her property on a regular basis. 
Uh, but composting is actually a really useful option. And if it's not too many horses, you um, the composting process reduces the volume about 50%. So just composting itself is a good solution for, for many horse people because it, and if you start with a six-foot pile of manure, you're going to end up with a three-foot pile of compost. And almost anybody can figure out a good use for use of three feet of compost. Yeah, I have a, a lot of landscaping that's done with compost off of off of my horses. So I'm always yeah, thinking it, of a new flower mound, a new place to plant some stuff. Right, so. it's black gold, yeah. really, and it's it's going to kill weed seeds, parasites, pathogens. It's really a a good um, a good thing for horse owners. We have a follow-up question. Sally is in the live audience. Carolyn, she would like you to repeat some of the names of the substrate materials that you mentioned for high traffic and, and muddy areas. Uh, what were those again? When it, when oh. products I'm familiar with is called light hoof. Okay, light Hello. hoof. Okay, yes. all right. Um, uh, hoof grid. And um, I, you can also use a cattle cloth which is um, a little bit easier to install. I don't know if that has any um, potential um, toxic qualities. Elaine, do you know anything about that? Oh, ge the geotextile fabrics? No, those, yeah. are, those yeah. are good to use. Yeah, there's okay. so many different kinds of geotextiles. And a bit yeah. easier to install, and that will help to really um, dissipate the water more, more evenly. So that, that those are three, and then you can find more online. And the geotextile fabrics keep layers um, from co-mingling, like so that if you have larger rock below, and you put geotextile fabric down, then it'll keep that large rock from moving up because the big rocks want to come to the surface. Our next question is for Carolyn. Robin in North Carolina would like to know for having individual paddocks with off of stall doors, how do you deal with clearing the snow from those doorways? Um, are there some design ways that, that we can work around that? Um, honestly, I haven't encountered that in my area. We don't have a big snow problem, but I'm thinking that the larger First of all, to be able to access it away um, from outside the barn um, rather than through the, through the stalls would be really helpful, either a really large gate or removable sections of fence so that you could you could get in and out easily. Maybe, um, Elaine, you have more snow. You might have some thoughts on that, too. Well, actually, uh, I in some parts of Washington where I uh, have friends with horse places or where we've done work, they actually just go in and shovel it out by hand uh, to clear it. And when we were in Washington and we had a lot of snow, we we just waited for it to melt. But what I the other thing I've seen people do is have overhangs, kind of like a veranda, um, so that they have a stall or a run-in shed plus kind of a loafing area with a roof and rubber mats under that so that if it does snow, at least they have that area where they can stay out of the, the snow. Um, snow clearing, you know, is 
for areas where they have high snowfall. I think I would just try to have a smaller paddock so I didn't have to clear a really big area. And I'd think about the footing so that um, whatever I was using, if I was like using a, a tractor and I was going to blade it out, that I wouldn't be digging up all of that footing and, and pushing it into the pasture or losing it. So I'd, I'd try to consider that in the equation. Yeah. It's July. I don't want to think about snow, but <laughs> but here yeah. in our area we get quite a bit of snow in the winter, and uh, that solution of having um, a, a loafing area that extends past the stall. A lot of people have that, so the horses, even though when we do get a lot of snow, the horses at least have more than their 12 by 12 stall. It's more of a, a 12 by 24 area that they can move around, and, and that's a, a really nice solution. And that's one of the reasons I would like to have a barn in our area is because of the snow, because I've been out there on snowshoes feeding my horses, and uh, it would be a lot easier for me if, if I just had a barn that I could snowshoe to instead of having to snowshoe through the paddocks with hay. Um, anyway, um, our next question yeah, that's, is... Yeah, that's a lot of snow yeah, <laughs> that you're talking about. Yeah, yeah my horses, um, you know, those clowns, those boppies that, that you'd punch and they would fall over and then snap back at you. Um, that's kind of how oh. I was with my horses on the snowshoes trying to carry hay out to them when we had a really oh big snowstorm. So wow. not the safest situation. Um, the ne our next question is for Elaine. Kevin in Oregon wants to know what kind of setback is needed to keep uh, fish and wildlife habitats around streams safe from paddocks um, that horses are in. Right. That makes me happy that horse people are asking these questions and thinking these things. Um, what you want to think about is the high water mark for that stream. So it's not just like what the, the water mark is now at this time of year. Think of how high that stream can possibly get, and then you want to have a setback from that. And it kind of, the amount of setback goes back to what Carolyn was saying in the beginning about how you need to research and find out what the regulations are for your area. It's going to be different in, in more urbanized areas. They're going to have more prescribed setbacks. But the minimum, the absolute minimum, would be at least 25 feet from the high water mark of vegetation. And you'd want to have that vegetation so that it can, um, any runoff from your paddock can get filtered out by the vegetation before it meets the stream. So the vegetation could, should be native plants. They would be the best for the habitat and health of that stream. Uh, thanks, Elaine. I just looked up at the clock and I hadn't realized that our hour had gone by so fast. Um, really quickly, I have a couple more questions I want to uh, toss at Carolyn. Maybe we can get short answers on them. Uh, Carolyn, Alice in Texas wants to know what the average cost of having an architect familiar with equine facilities design one for you. How are those fees set up? Well, um, it's hard to say, to answer that and say anything, but it depends. Um, the fees typically are broken up into conceptual design, um, uh, design development where the concept is taken a little bit, uh, got a, much more detailed and you can begin to get cost estimates from it. Um, a permit set of drawings, which is enough detail for the contractor to build most of it and also um, to get the building permits and all the permits that you need for the project. 
And then finally, the last phase would be uh, really detailed drawings, which often aren't required, but, but are sometimes nice to have, and um, the construction supervision or how administrating the contract, things like that. So um, if you wanted to give a, a real ballpark for uh, it, I, I hesitate to do that because it's really project-based, but architects would charge um, an hourly rate for probably the, uh, some of those services, and you just really have to talk to them about um, exactly what you were looking for and to, to really flush that out. Um, they used to say that um, a house with full with full administration would be around 12% of the construction cost. And so the architect might quote you some percentage of the construction cost and be able to um, tell you what was included for that. Okay. Um, another quick question for you um, that I had here was um, what, this was from Katie, and she wants to know what are the most common problems you often see in course facilities? So really quickly, we'll have uh, Elaine, if you can answer that, and then Carolyn, and then we're going to have to wrap up for the evening. Indoor facilities, the most common problem I see is ventilation, I think, um, or not having good footing in the stalls. And a lot of times you see stalls that have, uh, the, the stall mat hasn't, they don't have stall mats, or the stall mat doesn't have compacted material underneath it so it starts having a dip in it or they have some other kind of flooring that holds the urine smell so I'd say ventilation and, and footing in indoor facilities. Okay and Carolyn? I, I, was, I was going to say um, poor ventilation and, an, and a dark facility and um, the, the thing I would add that I think is a really imp, uh, easy fix and um, not necessarily common, but when it does occur is a real problem is, you know, um, safety hazards, um, nails sticking out, certain things that, that are overlooked and um, could really create a problem for the horse. So those are easy fixes requiring just a, a tuned in eye to, to that sort of problem. Well, that is all the time that we have for tonight. Uh, we do have some great questions we didn't get to. I'm going to ask Carolyn and Elaine if I can get them to write some responses to some of those that we can get up on the website in the future. Uh, so be looking for those. I want to thank everyone who listened live tonight. Uh, thank you, Carolyn and Elaine, for sharing your expertise with us. We really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Well, thank you, I enjoyed you, it. Yeah. And Likewise. Thank you, Michelle. Yeah, and uh, for anyone who's listening, uh, we will be archiving this uh, conversation uh, so that you can listen to it later online. Uh, last, before we go, we do have some resources that we've gathered for you. Uh, our editors looked at articles on building horse facilities and put them all together. There's 10 resources on that, and that is at thehorse.com slash farm resources, and farm resources is smushed together as one word. So thank you again everyone for joining us and have a good night.